You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. How good it is to be in God's house today, to open his word and to hear what he has to say for us. Before I have you stand with me, I want to just mention to you that from time to time, people will ask me the question, you know, why do you, why do you preach through books of the Bible and hit every verse? One of the reasons why is because of a passage like ours for today. If you're not going to go through the discipline of preaching through books, then what you tend to do is you tend to avoid the passages that are hard. Today we have a passage of Scripture, we have words of our Lord that are challenging but necessary, tough, and yet in the end aim at a tenderness to deliver our hearts and deliver our souls from sin's wrath and the judgment of God. We want to experience the fullness of God's power. And to do that, we have to think long and hard about what Jesus said, in particular about our sins. And so I'm going to ask you, if you will, Please stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's Word. We'll be looking at Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. And I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. And I want you to hear these words and be challenged today. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die. And the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. But notice how this ends. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. And I ask God that you will let it speak to our hearts Lord, we've heard these words before, many of us have, and and God, these are hard sayings that you gave us, but I pray today that you will help us to see the radical devotion we must have to you and the radical love that you want to fill our hearts with. Lord, if you will fill our hearts with radical love, we won't have any room for no sin. And so God, we pray you'll open our eyes and our hearts this morning, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week was the Super Bowl, and who won? Anybody know who won? I'm telling you, I think it was because of my tie, just saying, but not that I'm superstitious at all. But tonight is the Oscars. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, some people watch that, that, those shows and, and enjoy that, and you know, I, I know that uh, you know, a lot of the films that are out there are, are kind of crazy and that kind of stuff, but there's still good art out there. There's some movies that, that are powerful, that really help us think deeply about who we are, and it's so funny. When I was growing up, I, I grew up in the era when Rocky was big. 
Now, the, the very first Rocky, I, I, I had forgotten this, but it won all kinds of Academy Awards. It was a very successful movie. It really was. And when you watch it now, it's kind of slow. The first one's kind of slow. But I came of age when Rocky fought Clubber Lang, otherwise known as Mr. T. You see this up here right now? Okay. That, when I think of Rocky, this is what I'm thinking of. And, and there's this scene, and it's actually this scene right here that you see a picture. And I, I watched the scene, and it is not appropriate here for us today, okay? For a number of reasons, the violence and all the things that go on in the scene. But I'll never forget, because you got to love Rocky, all right? you got to love him uh, because he's so tough. He's, he's just so strong and so tough. And this is the scene where Clubber Lang, it's a second fight that he's having with Clubber Lang, and he got beat up the first time. But he goes, and you know how Rocky does, he goes and trains a little bit harder and somehow becomes superhuman, okay? That's kind of, if you don't know the theme of Rocky, that's how it works. He trains a little harder, becomes superhuman, and nobody can beat him. But I'll never forget this. It's always stuck with me, this scene where Rocky decides that what he's going to do is he's going to wear out his opponent. Now, this is a stratagem that a lot of boxers use. And he puts his hands up like this. And I mean, he lets Mr. T wail on him. And this is what I remember, hearing these words. Ain't so bad. Ain't so bad. And he says, I ain't even hardly breathing. But he keeps taking those blows. And, and in the movie, you know, they do the sound effects. And, and, and it's just really powerful. And you can just see uh, Mr. T back in the day was a big man. And it looks like he is just wailing on Sylvester Stallone. And then you can just see him. He just, he absorbs those blows and he keeps saying, it ain't that bad. It ain't that bad. But if you've watched any more of the Rocky movies and you see that as the Rocky movies go on, he had brain damage. So evidently it was pretty bad. (laughs) Now, my point is this. I think when it comes to sin... Many times we tell ourselves it ain't that bad. We're getting hit hard with our sins, but we keep telling ourselves it ain't that bad. That we can absorb another blow, that we can continue to go down the path that we've been going down, and somehow, some way, that sin's not going to catch up with us. That somehow that sin is not going to do long term damage to us. But the truth is, sin is a powerful force in this world. And it does great damage to our hearts. Sin is caustic. It destroys all that it touches. And I think if we were to really realize how devastating sin is, we would fight it with more determination. I think the church today has been using a similar stratagem as it relates to sin. That we'll just, we'll, we'll do our Bible studies and we'll do our different things. And we'll do our churchy things. And as sin keeps hitting us, we'll say, it ain't that bad. It ain't that bad. Pretty soon you're going to get knocked down. In the movies, a boxer can take that kind of punishment. But in real life boxing, any one of those hits would have knocked him down. And he wouldn't have got back up for a week. You see, we need to come back to reality. And as I've been sharing with you on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, what we need to come to grips with is that we are at war, not with anybody else, but we are at war with an enemy who hits us hard, who has zero love for you and wants to destroy you and your family. 
And we're going to have to get radical in our devotion to Christ. We're going to have to lean in, just as we were singing a moment ago, leaning on the everlasting arms. We're going to have to lean into Jesus, rest in Him, trusting in His grace. As we will see, the fight against sin in this passage, I think, shows us that we need to have a strategy that's inside and outside because sin has an inside and an outside dynamic. We need to be ready for what is coming. We need to be prepared to fight because it's not just about protecting our souls. If we are not careful, if sin enters into our hearts, if, if people know that we are professing Christians and sin knocks us down, it also knocks out our witness. But you think about this, we are powerless in our witness when we are plagued by sin. And so if we are serious about reaching this generation in the name of Jesus, we're going to have to live holy lives. Not just so that we can can crow about how holy we are, but we want to be holy because it takes the holy power of Christ to invade the darkness of this world. We need to experience victory over sin. And it's interesting to me that most of the conversations we have in church, when we're just talking, how many times do those conversations drift into the area of where we talk about people who have fallen, people who have fallen away from the church, people who have fallen into sin. I mean, the stories are everywhere. At every level, we know that it's happening. And sometimes it does feel like that we are are just being defeated again and again and again. And so, church, I'm telling you, it is time for us to turn a new page in the life of the church, not just of Ridgecrest, but I think of American Christianity. I think of Christianity in the Western context. We're going to have to get serious about fighting back, fighting against the sin in our own hearts and the sin that is surrounding us in our culture. Today I'm going to talk about sin's septic power, which is really looking at what sin does to us on the inside and some of the Bible's radical solutions to the problem. Then the second thing that we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about sin's seductive power. And in that instance, we'll be looking at sin's influence in the culture and how it attacks us from the outside uh, to the inside, okay? And then we're going to finish up by talking about what it means to be a salty Christian because the answer to the question, how do I battle back against sin? Jesus gives us the answer in verse 50. It's about saltiness as a saint. If we want to fight back, if we want to win, uh, this metaphor of salt is what Jesus gives us. So let's talk now about sin's septic power. And I want you to see the majority of our text deals with this subject, beginning in verse 43 and going on down through verse 49. These are strong words of Jesus. I I find it comical and sad that some people like to say, well, the Old Testament is filled with uh, stories of judgment and the New Testament is all about love. Anybody that tells you that simply isn't reading their Bible. Because the New Testament, and in particular, the ministry of Jesus shows us that he hits sin head on. He talks about judgment. He talks about wrath. He talks about hell. And, and there's no getting around it. 
we have to realize that Jesus understood that hearts would be impacted negatively, destroyed completely by sin. Now, let me give you an example of the subtle ways in which sin has been working in this chapter. In the ninth chapter of Mark, we see a couple of instances that we've already talked about as we've been preaching through the ninth chapter, but, but things that we need to remind ourselves of. Because I think when I start talking about sin's power, our mind goes to some of the, the, the sins that are, are really dark and dirty and terrible. But notice in this chapter that the sins that have been plaguing the disciples are more subtle than that. Notice or remember that in chapter 9, verses 33 through 37, the disciples had been arguing about who the greatest was. Friends, that's pride. And pride is is a sin that opens up the door for for all other sins. What about uh, some other thoughts here? We have the disciples are fussing at other people. For not casting or for casting out demons, not in the name of Jesus. That was our talk last week. Well, here we have sectarianism, which is a fancy word, which means where, where we look at other people who are serving the Lord and we kind of are judgmental or, or we're, um, we're jealous of what they're doing. So pride and jealousy. Now, now, those two things, we would all kind of say, well, come on, pastor, those, those are sins. I will allow for that. Um, but they don't seem to be that big a deal. Well, here's the problem. The reason why sin uh, is, is sometimes overwhelming us is because we let sin come in in those little ways. And before we know it, it is septic and it affects the whole system. We let our guard down even a little and the enemy infiltrates. That's what I think chapter 9 is trying to tell us. Those who are in the room who are medical professionals, you know how it is. If you have an infection in an extremity of the body and it is not dealt with, that septic limb, that place of infection, if it, allows, if it is allowed to continue, it can kill the whole organism, can take our lives That is the gist of this analogy. And notice that, and for time's sake, we're just going to hit it quickly here because I think you'll get it. Notice that Jesus speaks of sin and how it infects. That's kind of the the language here. And he speaks of our eyes, our hands, and our feet. And he says the only thing to do when there is an infection that's gone crazy, when it's already set in, is cut it off, pluck it out. Now, these are very, very violent ideas, but you need to understand that Jesus is thinking in a utilitarian form. And what I mean by that is, is that he's thinking about the preservation of the body. Now, losing an eye or a hand or a foot is a serious matter, but you can continue living without those, those parts of the body. And what Jesus is saying is, as important as it is to have two eyes to see and two hands to, to, to hold on to things and two feet to walk, he asks the question, are, are, is it worth it to allow the whole organism to die? Because that's what sin will do. If you do not have forgiveness in the name of Jesus, those sins of jealousy, those sins of pride will eventually Kill the body completely. It is life and death. Dare I say, since Jesus did, it's heaven or hell. This is the language that Jesus uses here. 
It reminds me of the little song that we sang as children when I was growing up. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. The eyes represent what we see. The hands represent what we do. And the feet represent where we go. And in each instance, we see that Jesus is telling us there is danger everywhere. That in this fallen world, there are so many ways that we can falter. Sin is always looking for an open door. And church, it is time for us to get serious about it so that we make sure that we shut those doors. Before I paid the bills, I can remember my parents telling me to shut the door in the winter and in the summer. Because I was careless about those things. Now I'm not so careless about those things. When you pay the bills, you understand the problem. But hear me well. As I have been in ministry now for for several decades, two, two decades and a half, I guess, about 25 years, I am more convinced today that the church's problem over time is, is that we continually keep the door open just a little bit, and then we're shocked at what gets in. We're shocked that that churches can so quickly move away from gospel preaching and teaching and discipleship and evangelism. The basics, the basics. Listen, one of the things that I want to tell you, as I'm preaching to you, I'm never trying to be all that clever because you'll always hear me come back to Bible study, prayer, discipleship, evangelism. The problem with the church today is, is that we forget that the only way to keep the door closed to sin is to stick with the gospel fundamentals. Sin is septic. Don't open that door. It is not worth it. Jesus' language here is so, so very stark. Notice that, that he may be quoting from Isaiah 66, 24, which reads, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall, not, or they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now that's a typical Old Testament prophetic warning. But notice the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against God. Sin is rebellion against God. Don't miss that connection. Pride, jealousy, sexual sins, all of those things, apart from the cleansing blood of Christ, are rebellious and lead us to eternal death. Those sins are septic. Jesus could have watered this down a little bit. In the original language, he could have used the Greek word Hades here because in the Greek worldview, Hades was just the place where everybody who died went. But he chose a different word. He chose a word there from his culture and his language, his heart language. He chose the word Gihana. And it was a specific reference to the valley of Hinoam, which was right outside of Jerusalem. It was the garbage dump. And if you've heard the stories, you know that there was fires burning there all the time. And if you were poor and couldn't afford a funeral, that's where bodies went to. And so if you'd ever walked by the valley of Hinoam, you saw unquenchable fire. You saw human bodies burning in trash heaps. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be you know, a a, a pastor who shocks you. But when you read this text, Jesus is not, not, he's not doing this accidentally. He wants to get our attention. 
He wants us to see that sin is serious business and that judgment is real. Sin has power to destroy you. Jesus is saying that. And we need to watch our own hearts. And we need to be aware of hearts around us as well. I don't want to meddle here. But I am going to meddle a little. I know if I say, as soon as I say this, some people roll their eyes. The Super Bowl halftime show. Now, I have some friends that I really respect who are defending it because they said, well, you don't understand that culture, Latin culture, and and what's going on there. My response to that is, culture can be sinful. Isn't that true? Our culture has sin in it. Every culture that I've studied in social anthropology has sin in it. Every, you, you look and go around the world, you see that sin creeps into every single situation. And so, listen, we cannot use as an excuse for that kind of behavior, that kind of behavior that destroys young women's egos, that destroys young women's bodies. We need to not just say, well, that's cultural. We need to say that it is sin. And we need to say that. I think some of the folks on staff I've heard and some people in the pews, they're going to advocate for Weird Al Yankovic to do the show next year. I think that'd be a whole lot better, quite frankly. I need a good laugh. But anyway, yeah, look that up. That would be fun. But anyway, so friends, it's serious. Jesus speaks of this because he knows that the devil is going to, to try to use ploys like that to say, well, you know, they didn't really mean it the way you took it. They, this was art. As a person who, I am a terrible artist, but I love beautiful art. No, this is just not art. It's not. It, it is sin. And I think we need to, to, not in a judgmental, angry, ugly way, as some people like to do when they see something like this. It's just an easy target. We'll attack those performers and say, listen, I mean this. Anybody who thinks that that empowers young women and want their daughters to see that, they are so twisted in their minds. I, I feel sorry for them. It's not that I, I'm angry with them. My heart breaks for them. And it's an open door. See, what they don't realize is, is that that art for art's sake opens up doors to people. And we need to make sure. Listen, church, all I'm saying is, instead of casting stones, I'm just saying, let's make sure that our doors are shut. Um, Most of the time when I'm with friends and family and looking at my phone, I feel bad about it. But through through the halftime show, that's what I did this time and felt perfectly empowered to look at the nonsense on Facebook. Okay? (laughs) Anyhow. Now, I want to show you something in this text that's very interesting that I think we miss. I know we miss. Jesus, it would seem, in this text, is speaking to his disciples. Now, it may not be always the case, but it seems to be often, almost always the case, that when Jesus is speaking about hell and damnation and judgment, he's doing so in the context of discipleship, that he's talking with his disciples. It would seem that when Jesus is trying to win the lost, those people who are not believers, those who are not followers, he uses a different angle. He speaks of love. He speaks of grace. He uses a very different kind of methodology. But when he pulls his disciples aside, he says, listen, you need to understand why this is important, why it's important to preach the gospel, because there is a heaven and there is a hell. 
There is judgment coming on those who remain in rebellion and wickedness. He tells his disciples what the reality is, not so that they'll go out and just point fingers at everybody, but that their hearts will be broken by that fact and that they will preach the gospel of love because they love people enough to rescue them from the unquenchable fire. Our goal here today isn't to scare people into heaven, but to help you find the love of Jesus. And that will keep you out of hell. But I'm talking to you, church member. You need to realize that Jesus is speaking to you as a disciple. He takes the gloves off to go back to our boxing metaphor. He wants you to know how serious this is. We need to, however, be like Jesus and speak of judgment with tears in our eyes. We do not use the prospect of hell to scare people, but we do need to be honest. If someone asks, what is it about the gospel? Why is this so important? Why are you so passionate about it? I think that that's when we can say, because we really believe in heaven and hell, and we want to see sin destroyed before it destroys us. Now, We can't avoid sin's assault on our lives. Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Now, there's a number of ways to look at this verse, but what God really spoke to my heart was is that every one of you as a believer in here, sin has has not left you alone. Every single one of us know uh, the, the fire power of sin, and we've all been burned by it. Another motivation to share the gospel is we understand the force and power and evil of sin and we don't want it to cause anyone else to experience septic, the the septic nature of sin. We want people to be free in their hearts. It's so sad to see so many people in our culture with broken hearts. The only way that broken hearts are healed, the only way that hurting souls find healing is in Jesus That's why we preach. That's why we teach. That's why we disciple. Now, verse 42, sin's seductive power. Now, with just this one verse, I want to show you kind of what's going on here. Again, I think it connects well with the rest of the text. So far, I've been talking about sin more on a personal level and what it does to you. But we need to remember that the battle doesn't stop just with us. That when when sin gets a hold of us, we are influencers. We are witnessing uh, one way or another to people. We are either helping people get closer to Christ or we are pushing them away. Now, verse 42, I think um, Jesus still has the little child with him. If you go back a few verses, verse 36, he had a child there with him and he was using the child as, as, as a teaching illustration. I think that the child is still there. I think he's still talking to his disciples. And this does show that children need to hear the hard words of, of the word too. It's okay for them to hear the hard words, the hard teachings of Scripture. But if it's not that, then he's talking about just the weaker brothers or something like that. There are different uh, scholars who see it different ways. But ultimately, here's what Jesus is saying. Your sin problem never remains just your sin problem. And when you don't realize this, if you are too thick-headed to realize this, Jesus says it is better to have a millstone tied around your neck and you thrown into the depths of the sea. This is not a loving, gentle Jesus kind of saying, is it? 
The upper millstone was the stone that was so big that it required a beast of burden to turn it. We're not talking about a, a, a stone like this, but a huge one, heavy, pulling you down to the bottom. I wonder, church, how often that we say, stay up at night worried about our witness. We, we stay up late at night sometimes worrying about our problems and maybe our sins. Maybe we're wrestling with God and we're trying to overcome those things. I pray with your, with your conscience that as, as things happen to you in your life that you are doing that. But I wonder how often that we are asking ourselves, what does my Christian walk look like? What do my actions, my words, my behavior, what does that look like to a lost world? You see, sin's seductive power is, is that we don't see it in our own lives and the devil is able to lead people astray even through us. It is seductive. It's one thing to be negligent of your own soul, but when one considers that our actions can lead to the destruction of others, how can our conscience be clear? Your holiness matters in more than one way. Sin can seduce you and then use you to seduce others. That's a fact. As we reach out into our community and start sharing Jesus more and more, we'll hear people say things like this. You know, I don't really feel like coming to a church because I've seen how some church people behave. Right? You've heard this? If you talk to too many people about coming to church, invite too many people to come to church, you'll hear this eventually. And here's the deal. It just proves my point that sin is not only seducing you, but you are able to seduce others away from the kingdom of God because you've allowed sin to grab hold of your heart. Your witness has led people in the wrong direction, not to Christ, but away from Christ. And let me ask you, which direction are you leading people? Which direction? Direction is your witness pointed to. Now, all this is pretty heavy. We've talked about eyes and being gouged out and hands and feet being cut off. We've talked about millstones around your neck. What an encouraging day in the house of the Lord. But Jesus, in such a masterful way, Wraps this up with verse 50 in a, in, in, a, in a beautiful way. Not just masterful, but beautiful. Because what he's saying is, I'm not trying to just scare you, but I'm trying to help you to become the very best disciple you can be. And, and, and in the scriptures, many times, uh, the metaphor of salt pops up. And today, real quick, let's think about what it means to be spiritually salty. Now, obviously, he's mixing his metaphors a little bit. First, you have being salted with judgment in verse 49. But then, here he tells us that salt is good. So now he's talking about uh, salt in the, in the traditional sense of, of being a very valuable thing, something that we, we want to have, something that brings flavor and joy to life. And the Scripture here uh, says that we need to have salt in ourselves, and simply put, I mean, we, we have to allow God's Word to fill us. We have to allow God's Word to change us. But, but hear this very quickly, for time's sake, just hear my heart. What God is telling us in verse 50, when He says to us here, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. I believe that Jesus is calling us here to holiness. He's saying... I realize that in life, 
you can have moments like when you're first a believer and you're kind of salty for Jesus, but then you lose that saltiness. Jesus is saying he's allowing for the possibility that that's happened in your life. But here's the thing. Don't settle for the lack of saltiness that you have today, but crave to be more salty for Christ. Jesus is encouraging us. He is saying to us, if we're in the pews today, if we're in the room today, and we know that we have sinned, we know that we have not been a good witness, we know that there is the septic element of sin in our lives, our witness has not been what it is. The devil wants you to believe that you can only stay in that bad place, that there's nowhere to go. But I'm going to tell you, Jesus is saying that if you had salt once, you can have it again. He is calling you to be salty again. My kids, I, don't, I think it's like five years ago, because when I said it a couple weeks ago to test my children, they rolled their eyes, which tells me that dad is irrelevant again. My kids used to talk about being salty, you know, and they would use that as to be like sassy. And so, you know, normally I'm either five years or 5,000 years out of whack. Usually it's more like 5,000 with the way my mind works. But, but they were telling me that, you know, kids don't say, you know, you're salty anymore. But it communicates. It communicates being salty in that way. But that's not what I'm talking about here. Not salty in a negative sense, but salty in, in, in a way where... We are understanding that God is using us for his glory. I think one of the saddest things in the world is a Christian who has lost his or her purpose. American churches are filled with Christians who have lost their purpose. Who once upon a time had a call and a drive and a joy It's no longer there. They had a radical devotion and a radical love, and it's not there. And again, the enemy wants to tell you that you've lost it forever. And I'm going to tell you right now, the devil is a liar. What you've lost, Christ is calling you to regain. Any saltiness that has gone away, listen, it's in this altar. It's in other places in your life. I'm going to show you here a couple quick things that you can get it back, but let's crave church, not salt in and of itself. Let's crave being salty again. And that only happens through holiness. So let me just give you this idea. I think that strife in our life is a lack of saltiness in our soul. The more conflict we have, you know, I was thinking about it this morning, about how, how, you know, when we are not where God wants us to be, we spend a whole lot more time being critical than being introspective. The devil always wants us to see the faults in others or in the church or whatever. Listen, by the way, if, if you just need to know this. Ridgecrest isn't a perfect church. It's a wonderful church. But if you want to point a finger at something we're not doing well or we've not done well lately, I, I, I really don't have much of an excuse. I'll have to shrug my shoulders and say we, we need to be more salty. I get it. But listen, what we have to do is realize that as long as there is this strife in our hearts, if we're not building relationships, if we're not being positive, then the devil has us where he wants us. So what do we do? Well, good for us. Pastor Wayne and others on staff, Pastor Kevin, have been working hard and been talking to you guys an awful lot about one-on-one discipleship for many years. Many of you, over 100, I'm told, have gone through specialized classes teaching you how to disciple other people. So when we ask the question, okay, pastor, you're saying that we need to regain our salt. How do we do that? Well, we stay salty by being in consistent discipleship relationships. 
And let me tell you what that looks like. If you'll look up here, I'll show you. One, we read the Word daily. Now, I've given you two examples here, thebibleplan.org. If you just want to go online, if you sit in front of your laptop or your computer in the morning, um, you can get the McChaney uh, Bible reading plan, get in the Word every day. Or if you have the YouVersion app on your phone, they have multiple examples that you can use to be in the Word daily. Now, here's another thing. We can pray with fellow believers. I've told you again, we pray on Thursday mornings back here. Pastor and, and Johnny and I, and a couple of us, we get together. You can come and pray with us. We'd love for you to be here on Wednesday night and pray with us. And then the third thing here is accountability to fellow believers. And here's what's interesting. All three of those things, it's like, I, I, don't, I don't know if I have time to add three more things to my, my daily schedule, my weekly schedule. Well, let me encourage you that really all you need to do is add one thing to your, to your schedule. And that is that you will commit to either lead or be led by somebody in a discipleship format where you and two others, maybe, maybe three at the most, get together and meet over at Travelers where people see you with your Bible open talking about Jesus. You'll be amazed at how many times you can share your faith when you're in a place like that, reading your Bible together. We need to start investing in one another. Every single one of you in this room, and I'm making no exceptions, you need to be in a discipling relationship. Because how we're going to overcome these terrible forces of sin, sin is septic. It is dangerous. It causes our souls to corrode and it holding one another accountable. It's the only way. Let's commit to one another. Let's commit to the Lord. Let's make our church one where we are radically devoted to Jesus, where his radical love is flowing through us. We need to be disciple makers, and we need to be discipled, and we need to not make any excuses about it. So the battle is on. Put up your defenses. It ain't so bad. It ain't so bad. But after a while, it just hurts. And what I'd like to do is help you just avoid those punches altogether by being together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's ask God to make us salty again, to take away any bitterness, any sin that's in this room. Christian, if you need salt, come pray. Friend, if you're not a believer, sin's coming for you. But Jesus is better, bigger, and stronger. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.